and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The banking industry has been warned for decades to become more innovative, transform to digital, embrace new technologies, and become more aware of consumer and societal needs. Rather than moving forward, many organizations hesitated due to cost, the desire to stay the course, or even intentional blindness. Unexpectedly, however, the world was disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic that required digital engagement, and more recently, a social pandemic centered on racial equality, diversity, and inclusion. These events created four seismic shifts in awareness and behavior that are reshaping our understanding of business, society, technology, and even ourselves. We are joined today by Nancy Giordano, strategic futurist, founder of Play Big Inc., and co-founder of the Femme Futurist Society. In today's episode, Nancy discusses how the recent confluence of pandemics has impacted the future of work, our perspectives on social inequalities, changes in consumption, and our understanding of ourselves. So welcome to the show, Nancy. It's been a while since we spent some time together in Austin, Texas, discussing how financial institution executives need to think big and transform their institutions and themselves. I remember it was a great audience, but as we often saw, not everyone bought into what we were selling around taking personal responsibility for understanding the world around them and responding accordingly. But boy, have times changed. Not only are we dealing with the health pandemic that put the world in lockdown mode, but more recently, we have another rude awakening around how social inequities can create another global pandemic that we can no longer ignore. Um, in much the same way that COVID-19 provided an opportunity to reassess everything from the future of work to the environmental impact of shutting down for an extended period to how we should transform ourselves, the recent events around the killing of George Floyd woke up the world to issues that go back centuries. What do you believe is the most important shift in awareness and behavior coming out of the past few months? Well, you know, it's, it's funny how you would answer the question a month ago versus how you would answer the question now. And so we've been literally time stamping any of these interviews that we've been doing. Say today is June 9th, 2020, because God knows what's going to happen next week. And sort of where are we right now in our processing? So at this moment, I will say certainly the, the racial inequities and systemic inequities and institutionalized inequities that are in our system. You know, that was one of the four awakenings that I wrote about at the very beginning of this is that we would start to understand how uneven the playing field is for many people. But I think that has certainly become even the deeper, deeper, deeper understanding of that. So that would be probably the, the one that we're most in touch with and the one that has the longest history that we need to address. So you referenced the four shifts. What were the four shifts that you wrote about? Why don't you share them with the audience? Yeah, it was funny because it was like, I, you know, that we were just talking about the fact that, you know, sort of March 13th for us, the pandemic became real in the United States and certainly in Texas and Austin and South by. Um, so 10 days later, I wrote a piece that was about what we will know and what we won't know by September. Because it was just becoming clear that there were four things that we were being woken up to pay more attention to. So one of which is that we just said it was the inequities that exist in a system in which not everyone can remote work. Who are the frontline essential employees and whether they put in danger or not? Who's got access to good health care? Who is most vulnerable to the illness? All those kinds of things became more visible even in that early stage and have only gotten more and more visible since. So that was one. But the other one that I thought was really phenomenal was the fact that we can do remote work. 
as you and I have said, we've gone out there for years and asked companies to be more adaptive and to be more inclusive and to be more sustainable and to be more prepared and be more you know, resilient and create all these things in the way in which they work. And they were told often, I mean, almost always, no, too hard, too difficult, too expensive, too disruptive, too... We don't trust people. Right. We don't trust people. I mean, for sure. All the things that made it so an impossible thing to do. And now everyone was thrust into this digital world for digital work, digital medicine, digital schooling, you know, potentially digital voting. And now we're recognizing, oh, you know what? So many of those things that we were afraid of turned out not to be, or we just got over them. Like whatever that learning curve was that we had to do, we got over the learning curve and we did it en masse, which meant that we got to learn together. So we got to share best practices. We got to share our vulnerabilities. We got to share how to you know, use a Zoom background. When you're trying to figure that all out by yourself, it's scary when you're doing it with everybody else. It feels, you know, okay. So I think the big, big shift and the one that will last, I think, out of this is the fact that we are less afraid now of a digital landscape which is important because this is only the very, very beginning of a whole lot more change that's going to come. And so the fact that this is why I think we hopefully have launched five years into the future around some of that stuff. And so we're much more open. And then it creates all kinds of questions around, you know, what the institutions look like, like education moving forward. The uh, third was around environmental awareness, right? When the whole planet stops, like if, I mean, it's just shocking to me that every plane was grounded almost and, you know, cars stopped and malls closed and manufacturing was halted. Like, it was just stunning to figure out the whole kind of machine of the world stopped. There's a great Economist article that had a picture of the globe with a big closed sign on it. And so as a result, you got to see clear skies, you got to see clear water, you got to see the fact that we actually do have, our consumptive behavior has an impact on the planet. So what we're going to have to wrestle through is a tug of war between economic viability and environmental sustainability and try and figure it out because it was a huge cost to go the other direction. So the question will be, will we jump on a plane quite as quickly next time when we now know that we could do this, you know, Zoom? I had a friend who's on a board meeting right now with China via Zoom this morning. It didn't take that big, long flight to, you know, Beijing or Shanghai. So I think that we will think through our environmental footprint. I think it's dropped a little bit in priority now, given all the other social challenges that we're dealing with. But I do think we can't unsee the fact that you can make a difference in that. And the fourth one is our personal resilience are in our support systems and who's got our back and who doesn't. We sort of know who we are as we go through this. And, you know, both our own ability to adapt, our organization's ability to adapt, who, again, in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our offices and in our countries got our backs and is really providing phenomenal support to us. And what it means to create that resilience that you and I described earlier, which is the fact that it just, this isn't easy. You know, I got an email today out of the blue from a tech company that just wanted to check on my mental well-being. And it was like probably a hundred words long. It wasn't very long. And it was so touching and so tender and just so clear that just laying out how much complexity we're facing right now and just wanting to hold my hand a little bit for it. Like that was like amazing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't trying to sell me anything. And it's interesting because it's, it's hard to believe that all of what you said has happened in an extraordinarily short time. I mean, the fact that only about one month, six weeks into this, and Beijing could see their blue skies. L.A., where I lived for three years, where we sometimes could see Big Bear in the snow and Big Bear, and we're in North L.A., you could now see it from south of L.A., and L.A. itself and the city had virtually never seen the snow in the mountains. In fact, they knew they were surrounded by mountains only because most of them went back to them at the end of the day. And, you know, yeah, I'm sure for people in L.A., the fact that you could get from point A to point B quickly was also nice. But I think the scope of what happens, and it takes a whole argument around we can't change the environment or the environment is not changed. 
to a whole new level because now they're coming up with the fact that the ozone layer is actually helping to seal itself, that not just people, but the environment can reset itself and is also resilient. And I think that should give us confidence in this time of probably fear. You know, what do you think, besides the future of work, what are some of the the major shifts that you think are going to stick the most? Now, I mean, again, I, you know, I can spend my time way out into the future. And interestingly, we're working on a project right now with a client on imagining the future 50 years from now. So imagine what the world will look like in 2070, which is like kind of mind-boggling and, and honestly an impossible thing. But you start to really look at trajectories around what does healthcare look like when it moves to longevity and then it moves to immortality? And what does food look like when we're trying to feed, you know, almost 10 billion people and you're looking at bioengineering and that, you know, the fact that cows might just completely uh, be removed from our diet at some point, which is stunning. So there's all kinds of those things that you look at and say, okay, if that's what the future is going to look like in, you know, 30 or 50 years, how do we work back? And the fact is we're in the very, very beginning of a giant tech shift that is going to redefine everything, not just work and how we eat and how we're cared for, but literally what society looks like and the shape of that. And so for me, the fact that we have now, again, gotten some confidence about moving into a digital future and seen the pros and cons, we've seen the places where it breaks down and it needs to be resorted, I think is the part that's going to shift. We can't unlearn that, right? So even if we want to go back to offices, we're going to go back with a different understanding of work-life balance and the way the tools help us with that. And we're going to look at AI and we're going to look at virtual reality and we're going to look at cybersecurity, all those kinds of things that we've gotten more sensitive to. Well, it's interesting because when you take the COVID crisis and the social crisis we're in, we realize, as you talk about the tech side, that we're even having to rethink what our tech looks like. So AI and things of like this that are built by humans, you know, there's racial biases, there's gender biases built into these technologies that replicate the way the world is today as opposed to the way we want the world to be tomorrow. And so it makes us aware that as quickly as we can transform technology, we really have to do a continual recheck to say, is this flawless? I mean, we saw back um, when Goldman Sachs brought in Apple Pay that they built some biases in there that they didn't even know existed where people did not get cards that should have gotten cards and vice versa. What's going to make us, you know, these pandemics, it's going to make us aware of how they do cross. And, you know, it's obvious that the healthcare pandemic and the social pandemic truly are hitting the same communities. So in light of that, and the fact that the banking industry really is a foundation, much like government, as far as where we should go and what we should do, what do you think will be the biggest impact on the banking community? And how do you think they're going to respond? Uh, you know, it's, so there, there's multiple pieces to that question. I do think the idea of, again, I'm, a, I'm an artificial intelligence professional to the extent that I work with an artificial intelligence company here in Austin. I helped start one a few years ago here. I'm an advocate for it. Not so much because I think the world needs it, but because we're going to move in that direction. So we might as well help steer it and guide it in the way that we think holds people best. And bias is a huge piece. We've been talking about that for years. We've been talking about why we need more diverse teams, right? So one of the things I will say in banking is we need more diverse leadership across the organization and not just in a diversity inclusion kind of a program over here, but throughout all levels of decision-making because the people who are going to be using those tools are going to be coming and bringing their own biases to it. Just if you put any homogenous group period in that room, right, it's going to have bias regardless. And so you just need to have more and more diverse people because they are making these decisions. My son just sent me a headline that IBM has decided to cancel all of their facial recognition work 
they're not going to sell it anymore and they're not going to develop it anymore because they realize there's just way too much bias in the current technology of facial recognition and it raises a whole bunch of questions about the privacy of that and whether or not it should be used in any kind of law enforcement or even in private spaces. In Portland, they've outlawed it throughout the entire city. So those are the kinds of questions that we're going to have to wrestle with as we move forward and understand how we build solutions that are really relevant and personalized and, and efficient, all the things that we want. AI, machine learning, and these technologies to deliver in a way that really holds people well. So for me, I go back to the systems piece of this. Where is the institutional bias built in and what drove that bias? And I will say mostly it came from the fact that we have very few, a very homogenous group of people building it. And they were also building it toward a cultural mandate to only maximize ROI and make really short-term decision-making around that. And I think if you can broaden the horizon against which it is that we are making decisions and understand how they impact over a greater period of time, will be more thoughtful in what we build. Well, it's interesting because you, you talk about the, both the racial and the gender inequalities in the banking industry. And you really have a situation that very much like any old rooted environment, like government also, you have situations where people have gone up through the ranks. So the system, the way it was built, the way banking is built is you come in out of college, you stay in the industry throughout your whole career, you move forward in the ranks based on longevity as much as skills, and it perpetuates itself because the banking industry had not changed all that much. So what you end up with is the pool of people that you can put into the positions is not seen to be that great because not many people have, you know, it's hard to start midway through the process. On the other hand, as you said, we are, we're building AI based on the current or the past as opposed to the future, which is really our problem right now, is that when you build anything based on what the need is today, it doesn't last very long. And with now the knowledge that things can happen so fast, we have to really build them quicker. How do you think the banking industry needs to respond to the societal pandemic we're up against right now. Because most of the time, it's been a situation where it's been a great press release, maybe some investment in the community. How does the banking community actually become part of the community in which they serve? Well, I mean, it's really fascinating to watch right now. The uh, We always talk about what does the future need and expect of us and what a unique position to create and contribute to, right? That is the compass that I use for all my strategic work. Um, and so when I think about what does the future need and expect of us, right, we're in this place right now where systems need to be rethought. And to think that we are looking at defunding the police and figuring out how to do more community policing and really put people into that. Like, the, like that took me 48 hours to wrap my head around and kind of go, is that a good idea or is it not a good idea? And the more you read about it, the more you understand it, the more you see the social experiments in other cities where they try this. They recognize the role that community plays. And so I do think this idea of you know, banking is such a giant term, but it has shifted its shape from what I understand. You know, I'm not an expert in this field as much, but at the event that you and I were at, we were listening to some of the speakers talk about the fact that it has become such a big, huge, giant mega bank situation in which so much power is controlled there and so much, you know, of the money that is made is sort of in the you know, trading of sophisticated products and services back and forth between each other, that it is, it, it's not flowing into the communities anymore. So I go back to one of I think the really big things that we want to do with why I've worked so much with a company like Kasasa is to be able to ensure that community banks and credit unions stay healthy, stay competitive, 
are able to provide the services and the things that we've come to expect as consumers, but keep the money in the community so that those loans can get offered. The people, you know, you know your neighbors and you're, you're hopefully the bias is less when you're not looking at it just as an algorithm, but you're also looking at it as a neighbor and you understand the dynamics of the community. So I do think that idea, the same thing that we're asking policing to get like, you know, push down and get further into the neighborhoods and into the community, I would argue money needs to do the same thing and have you know, greater access and inclusivity. When you look at technology, one of the reasons why the big banks have done so well is they've been able to invest in this technology and to where it's going. Now, the cost of that technology has dropped, so I think there's a lot more ability to do that. But we had until March the situation that everything was good. We were in a very prosperous time. Every industry was, and banking was probably one of the strongest in that on that day, whatever that day is, March 13th or whatever day you could point, we went from a very prosperous industry to a much more at-risk industry. But it, I mean, part of the problem is, is that many organizations had not embraced the technology. The big banks are going to survive. They've invested in the ability to survive. The smaller banks are going to survive, not only because they can invest in that technology, but because they're already committed to the communities they serve. With that as a backdrop, do you think consumers are going to start to make decisions based on the commitment towards sustainability, toward the community, as opposed to just make it based on convenience, especially in the digital world? Do you think we're going to make our judgments, not just for banking, but for all industries, more based on their commitment to the communities they serve? You know, I think it's going to be a range. I think a lot of it depends on whether or not you've got the privilege of being able to do that or not. You know, some, if you go back to Maslow's hierarchy. You know, some people are just trying to figure out how to survive here and other people are trying to get to, you know, have the conversation in a different place. So I think that there will be people who are very, very focused on the environment side of it. Uh, there's a great product out of Sweden. It's a credit card that is tied to carbon footprint. So the idea is you basically set a carbon allocation for what it is that I want to spend in a month. And then it, you know, racks up what the carbon footprint is of everything that I just purchased. And then it kind of you know, stops working when I've hit that limit. So if I bought a big plane ticket now to Australia, I might not be able to go buy shoes or some of the other things that I might want to buy in that month without having to do a carbon kind of inventory and audit at that moment. So that's where I think these things kind of mix together. So the people who are very focused on that will look for the products and services that help them express their values and express their concerns and to you know, strengthen the systems that they want to strengthen in that way. And other people who are worrying about something else might not be doing it. So I don't think it's a one-fit solution to that. And I do think that there's always going to be this desire for convenience and low cost. And certainly as a commodity, if there's no other reason for me to make a decision, that's the way I'm going to go. Just as an aside, you know, during before the, the pandemic hit, but you know, my oldest son was establishing his banking and his credit. And, and I've always said, you know, I need to go to the big mega bank because that's where we bank. And it just, you know, you can rely on them and the, you know, it's always going to work. And twice his debit card had gotten denied for technical difficulties at that bank had nothing to do with his credit, nothing to do with his thing. And that was the only way he had to pay. So he's taking his girlfriend to breakfast at a diner and he can't pay because his card doesn't work. The second time it happened, he just said, the heck with you. And he went to online banking. I don't need the branch. I don't need to go to the physical location. I'll go to the digital bank because at this point it can't be any worse than the other bank that let me down. So I think right now reliability, you know, becomes as important as whether or not I just trust that bank. Space doesn't make any difference. He's not going to a branch since he was a kid. I have a, a kid that, uh, gosh, he was 14 maybe when he started doing our lawn. And 
two years ago when he was 16, he came up to me and said, Mr. Bruce, you know about Square Cash? I said, sure I do. I, I talk about it, but I also have it. He goes, do you mind paying me by Square? And I said, why? He goes, well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it's easy, and it's easy for you, so I don't have to worry about a check or cash. Because honestly, when you gave me check or cash, I had to go to the branch, and I don't want to go to the branch. And it was like that moment where you go, oh, my God, if you said so much and I made a deal with him that he's going to get paid a little retainer every time I brought the story up, and he loves when I bring it up because he gets a little extra in his uh, paycheck and his uh, <laughs> cutting of the lawn check. But the reality is, you know, my son asked me on his digital bank account. He goes, Dad, where do I find my account number? I said, on your checks. He goes, I never got checks when I got the account. I go, honestly, I don't know if I know the answer. I said, I've always, when I've had to do something like that, but I've always had to check around, I guess you have to go to the branch. He goes, but Dad, the branch is miles away. I didn't open the account because of where the branch was going to be. I go, okay. Um, well, we found it was actually on his statement, on his online statement, but the reality was, you know, some of these things that we're used to, we got to change ourselves and, and understand that the change is happening around us, whether or not we want to get on this train or not. Well, and again, people are looking for those solutions. So it's interesting, so, you know, my 23-year-old, the same one, who had now an apartment, and the only way that the landlord would accept rent was through a check. And Hugo was like, had no idea what to do. He had to go to the bank, he had to order checks, he had to figure out how to write a check. He had, like, he'd never used checks. It was just such a weirdly foreign thing. And, and he's the oldest. My you know, 17-year-old has no idea. So you've got that, and then, but then you've got Venmo, right? And you've got Zelle, and you've got all these other ways in which we're thinking about it. And then we haven't even touched on what's going to happen at some point with cryptocurrencies and multiple currencies and local currencies. So there will be a whole, whole way in which I think that the, the idea of money and how we use money, how we store money, how we accumulate wealth, how we pay for things is up for you know, a tremendous amount of redesign, which is why I think the work that you do, Jim, is so important. It's preparing people for a future they can't even see yet. And that's why I think the biggest shift here is about that, okay, at least we denied that all those things were either important or that we had the capacity to do them. And now we got thrown into this through the COVID crisis. And we had to understand you know, some of these technologies and some of these practices Hopefully that makes us more open to the other things that are going to be coming around the bike. And it's about also cultivating that talent inside these organizations, because it's easy to deny something when you don't think you've got the talent that can support it. So having those, you know, sort of frontier teams that are working on some of the solutions that are further out and looking not just at what customers are doing now or even what younger people are doing now, but understanding around the corner what that's going to look like as you know, cryptography meets AI meets, you know, Fortnite meets whatever. Like, what will that look like in the future? Microtransactions. We're going to end up having to do the things that are done fluidly without me ever even saying, yes, I want to pay for that or not pay for that. These systems are going to talk to each other. What are going to be the infrastructures that host that? The ability also for the world to build a system that thinks on our behalf, like having a digital concierge at your disposal for not just banking, but everything you do. We're already seeing it with people with the delivery of their groceries, where the Instacarts and such will say, by the way, based on your reorder habits, do you need this today? You know, that gets in a person's brain about what can be done. And so their expectations of what your bank can do is built on what Instacart and what Venmo. And Spotify can do. Oh, exactly. And as you realize this, you go, you know, this doesn't make sense to me anymore. And more than anything else, what happened in a digital moment was people were forced to use digital technology if they hadn't done it. If you had never deposited a check by taking a picture of it, 85% increase in, in number of checks being taken. Now, on the same sense, it also made people aware that things can change in a nanosecond. And so what happened also, 
more savings accounts were opened in May than ever in the history of banking as far as an increase. Why? Because people are preparing for the unknown. And you would think, well, geez, where's this money coming from? People are not rolling in the dough. What they're doing is they're reallocating the way they spend their money, the way they spend their time, and the preparedness. And this is all being done digitally. So if you weren't a bank that had a digital account opening process, you were SOL. You know, because basically you're saying, oh, you got to have to come in to verify who you are and to deposit your first check. And they're going, no, there's 18,000 ways for me to open a savings account. In fact, at the digital banks, I get a better rate. So, you know, I, you're, you're making it even easier for me to make a decision not to do business as usual. But I think what we, we really realize in the back of our heads, I know I do, is that anything that you think is standard changes almost instantaneously. You know, we both traveled. The way we made our living was different two months ago than it is today. But we're not going to go backwards. We've been challenged to transform ourselves. Do you believe this awareness overall about the different paths we can take, the awareness of how we can learn, how we can really go towards what we believe we want to be, our passion? Do you think people will, in and organizations, will, to, to use your term, play big, um, disrupting themselves, or do you think they'll continue to make modest incremental changes? Well, two things. Before I go to that, let me just say, when you talk about the fact that we're learning so much about this disruption, we're also, it's not just about how we work, and it's also about the models that are created, you know, the business models. So it's like, on the one hand, yes, we can now do a talk virtually versus we could do a talk live before, but actually, I'm really thinking a whole about restructuring around the pricing model lab, the delivery model of that negotiating contracts differently in terms of size of audience and how long you want that thing to play versus just a standard fee for all that stuff. So I think that when you move into this new world, you have to also recognize the business model itself needs to be transformed, right? Not just the delivery of the actual product. And so I think that's the part that we're going to have to now get more savvy about and more sophisticated around. And so this idea of reinvention is not just, again, in tools, it's also in the actual model and the revenue streams and the ways that we can create value. So that will then, I think, the, and to the second part of your question, what does that mean that where do I create value? Where am I in that value chain? And what do I passionately care about? Where do I want to work from? You know, we know many people right now who are senior leaders inside organizations who are going, hey, if we're going to do this work from home thing, I don't have to hire just people from my geography. I can hire them from anywhere in the country. So you're going to see this interesting migration around where it is that people literally want to live. And then as a result, you know, more flexibility around how they want to do what they want to do and whether or not it will be full time, you know, within one organization or whether or not it will continue to be more independent contracting, if you will. This idea that I have multiple roles inside multiple organizations. When you really look at the future of work, we always talk about the future of working. There's actually the future of work itself. What would that look like in the future? You know, there's something we just launched recently, the Fem Futurist Society a set of interviews with other female futurists around the world. And one of my favorite people, Alicia Abate, who I've gotten to know, talks a lot about the future of this. And she'll talk about consensual non-monogamy, meaning about the idea that your elite players will be able to play with lots of different organizations. They'll come inside and outside of your organization. They'll do different kinds of work at different times. And we'll actually value that instead of thinking that as disloyal, we think, ooh, they became you know more enriched by these other experiences and come back. So this whole idea, again, about what feels competitive and what feels parochial and what's inside the boundary, what's not inside the boundary, who's full-time, who's not full-time, who gets these benefits and who doesn't, that stuff's going to look different. So as a result, yes, we will be more reflective about who we are and what we want to do. Hopefully we'll be more tuned in. 80% of the people, anywhere between 70 and 80%, consistently in Gallup polls have not been engaged in their work. 
right? Why do we want to go back to a system when people aren't really committed to it anyway? They aren't happy, they aren't healthy, they aren't feeling good, they aren't feeling engaged, especially when you're moving into an environment that demands innovation and creative thinking and collaborative delivery. There's no way you can be disengaged and make that future possible. So what will be the structures that hold people so that they can be engaged and innovative and build authentic trust with one another to go create you know, much bigger? So that's the hope. Back to audacity versus incremental. The problem is we have been incrementalizing every moment up until now. And those people that did the least bold were the most slammed by this pandemic. Right? The people who had been experimenting with artificial intelligence things, who've been experimenting with remote work, who've been experimenting with digital delivery of products, who've been experimenting with you know, different types of collaborations and partnerships were much better prepared. So I think that the hope that the lesson out of this is do, you know, at least test big, even if you don't play big right now, start to build capacities to build some understanding of what that could look like. Start to test it more. Start to build, you know, pilot programs and proof of concept things. Start to build the ecosystem. You know, what was fascinating, one of the stories that came out of Italy when very early in the pandemic was when there was a valve that needed to be replaced for a ventilator and they couldn't get the manufacturer to do it. And they reached out to the 3D printing folks in their network and had it done immediately. The reason that happened is because they had the relationship already with the 3D printing people. They knew who to call, right? They knew that that technology existed. If you had no awareness of that, you would have felt really stuck. So the people who are investing time in learning about what's out there and being curious and incentivizing curiosity are the ones who will be able to make bolder steps. It's going to be interesting because when we go back to work, whatever that means, there's going to be a lot of people that realize that the job that they knew, that they felt comfortable with, is no longer there. And they will look back, as I warned people back in March, and they'll look back and say, did I lose three months where I could really embrace something that I was thinking about, that I was processing? You know, those organizations that really disrupted themselves and said, there's got to be a better way. We have a bank in Edmond, Oklahoma, that at the beginning of the SBA loan process said, we want to offer this to our customers and do it the best. They reached out, as you said, to a company they were familiar with and said, build us this thing because we can't do this. They ended up being featured by Mark Cuban, being featured by every publication in the banking industry as a bank that completely outpulled their weight because they're, they're, I think there are two branches. There may only be one branch. And they, they were one of the biggest SBA lenders. They also made a name for themselves because not only did you do that, but they offered all their customers the ability to draw down their accounts to the amount below what they thought was going to be their, their government check. So you could overdraw your account by $2,400 because you were going to get a check, but you could do it before you got the check. Now, that's innovative thinking and completely out of the box. Most banks would struggle with, geez, what's the risk? What if they don't pay back? What if this? What if that? What if that? And you say, you know what? We build all these things. That's how our credit bureaus are built. We look at credit bureaus because we look at, okay, there's a, a dark mark five years ago, and it's got to go seven years before it gets off your record. And you're going, yeah, but this person paid their utilities and their mortgage and their rent every single month. They were always on time with their car payment. Are they really that much of a risk? Or can't you make that decision? And I think as a person, as a company, you really got to say, you know, this is the best time in the world to disrupt yourself, to transform yourself on a growth basis for what's going to come as opposed to what is right now. And, you know, if nothing else, everybody probably has the awareness today that you can't stand still. No, totally. And first, of all, I'm going to give a big shout out to Jill Casillas because she's the CEO 
of that bank. Oh, there you go. That's okay. I didn't know you knew her. Yeah, we met her also through the Casasa event, and I've um, been following her work on LinkedIn, and she's been telling more and more of that story, and just a lot of innovations of what they were doing in her, both her branches and outside of it, and even the fact that she boldly just reached out to Mark Cuban, right? It was a Twitter exchange or a tweet exchange that sort of that, that, and she'll tell the story about how she brought her you know idea to him. He kind of tore it apart. He gave her another version of the idea. They built it together. Like it was very collaborative, but it was very bold for her to go out and just like try and figure out who she could reach out to to get some support for this idea that she had. And then to your point, figure out the partner. So there was so much about what made that possible to pull off that I think, you know, it's just worth giving a huge shout out. And what's interesting is she also then recently, um, Veterans Day did a whole blog on her personal story about how she decided, you know, to move from being a grocery clerk and, you know, and, and struggling college student to in the army to then what she's doing now. So I just think she is just such an example of leadership in this space that is just extraordinary in, in so many ways. And she builds her products very empathetically. Like she really does put the human at the center. And I think that's what's part of what gives us courage to move forward and do bold things is that we're not just doing it again because we're trying to drive to efficiency or because we're trying to drive to a quarterly return. We're doing it because it feels like this is the thing that we want to do for our employees, for our partners. Oh, and by the way, she she made a good business case for that. Totally. You know, so the reality was she built it for the right reason. Totally. And she benefited more than she ever would have if she had done the business that walked in the door. A hundred percent. I think what's even funnier is she's always been involved in social media but she became a social media icon in the way she's leveraged it. She has people working with her. And I've written to her a couple of times with an idea or something like this. She or somebody gets back to me immediately, but they understood the importance of that communication issue. And I think, you know, that's the other thing. That's, I think, maybe our final takeaway that in this whole thing of digital, the importance of technology-enhanced humanization is going to become more and more important because I don't want digital to replace human. I want digital to make it easier to deal with a human. I put that in quote marks if you had me on video because I think I don't need to know how human it is as long as it feels like you're listening. <laughs> so a bot, an empathetic bot would be okay for you? Yeah, well, an empathetic bot that doesn't sound like and act like a bot. So I think, you know, I want that human and I want to be able to reach out on my terms to reach a human who's going to understand all the conversations that went on before that rather than, yes, can you tell me your name and your social security number? You're going like, oh, my God, that again. Well, and again, I will say just during the COVID thing, too, I think for all of us, again, who are in the world of travel or travel a lot, recognize the brands that you could reach out to and actually have a real conversation with people or the ones you couldn't or the ones that were very proactive and communicated with me, even via digital platform, but told me what the, they anticipated what the next questions were that I was going to have or the next five steps were yep. and gave me really easy ways to resolve that. Yep. There's one dangling part of my travel unraveling that I still haven't been able to solve because I can't, can't get in touch with anybody. Yeah. Right. And their system isn't set up to make up for that. So I find that to be hugely frustrating. So I do think it's a dance between technology and human. All the research that we're finding over and over again in the world of AI is that it is a more effective system when humans are part of it. Right. It's, it cannot run autonomously and be as successful. But if we empower the real person with a bot, they are more effective than the bot alone. So the good news is that can also be done for good. And uh, we are seeing we definitely need humans in the mix. And back to, again, what you were just saying about Jill, when you design for having the human at the center, it does create profitable results, right? The companies that are considered the best to work for are also the ones that have the highest profitability. So I don't think that those two things should ever be considered at odds. I really do think that that is literally the rocket fuel to be able to use these technologies wisely and to empower you know, all the systems smartly. So I think it's about building with a, a really different mindset about how we 
orient our work and our investments moving forward. Nancy, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate you taking some time and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. Thanks for creating the space for these conversations. I think, you know, for those of us who aren't at the front lines feeling the pain in such dramatic ways, we have the responsibility of holding the space for what's possible coming next and painting that picture, encouraging people to get there. So thanks for all the work you do to keep us empowered. What a great interview. We're surrounded by so much bad news. It's always great to get a breath of fresh air from somebody like Nancy who really can shed some light on what we're going through right now, but more importantly, what it means to the future. I think when you look at the future of work, when we look at the future of the environment and social issues, you know, what we're going through right now is a test. It's a test of our ability to transform and really look at things in a different light Given that, I think not only ourselves as individuals, but as bankers and as large organizations, we have a lot we can do, and I think we will do going forward because of what we're going through right now. Again, what a great interview that was, and and what an upbeat moment. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raised a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you've provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transform on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me. Finally, be sure to catch my most recent articles on the financial brand and check out the upcoming research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lombrake, and our audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.